My wife is not simply uh, the sum of my interactions with her. She's also a being in herself, and what she is in herself actually shapes how she relates to me and to other people. So the speculative doctrine of God is not, we're not, you know, we're not sort of engaging in flights of fancy about what we think God might be like. What we're doing is we're looking at the text of the Bible and saying, you know, if, if God acts in this way, or if these things are true about God, then in eternity, the following things must be true of him. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. This is Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever thought about the relationship between biblical and systematic theology? Perhaps you've even attended seminary where you've taken classes in both of these disciplines. But what is the relationship between biblical and systematic theology? And more specifically, what role does systematic theology play in the life of a seminary? or a seminary student. That also brings up questions related to the doctrines of the faith, specifically the doctrine of God, in which systematic theology as a discipline uh, takes us into the deep things of God, uh, the very character, the very essence, the very attributes of God. But as we dive into the deep things of God, uh, attributes like impassibility or immutability, or God's timeless eternity, it brings us back to that, circles us back around to that original question. Well, do we see these in Scripture? And how exactly are we supposed to understand something like the doctrine of God from the biblical texts and move from the biblical texts to theological construction? Well, these are difficult and complicated issues, uh, no doubt. And I, I am uh, one who has uh, asked Carl Truman to join me uh, to discuss and add some clarity to some of these tough issues that are sometimes very controversial as well. Many of you know Carl from his many publications. Uh, he's written books like The Creedal Imperative, uh, Histories and Fallacies, Luther on the Christian Life, and, and I could go on. Uh, you may also know him from his teaching. Uh, he is has been uh, in the past. He's taught at Westminster Theological Seminary. He now teaches, though, at Grove City College and is also an, an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Carl, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. It's great to be here, Matthew. Thanks for inviting me. Carl, not too long ago, you wrote uh, a series of just popular uh, blog posts, we call them that, on uh, mortification of spin. And they were, I must admit, very intriguing. And they caught my eye because, uh, well, first of all, I'm interested at all times in things related to the doctrine of God. But uh, in these series of articles, you talked about not just the doctrine of God, but systematic theology and even church history. And why these disciplines are, are not uh, secondary or tertiary, but primary and of primary importance to uh, an evangelical seminary. When we talk about uh, 
the doctrine of God, for example, and you know, it, it naturally leads us to discussions of systematic theology, not just biblical theology. Uh, you make this striking, uh, provocative point uh, that that I, I think many have. Uh, it, it may step on the toes of many, but I think it's actually helpful. And you say this that the the tendency of us today of of modern evangelicals is that we prioritize say, the doctrine of Scripture or salvation over our doctrine of God. Uh, in other words, we're very seriously concerned, as we should be, about getting Scripture right, and we even make it a test of sorts to uh, orthodoxy or maybe entrance into a, a denomination or teaching at a school or, or a church. But you make the point that uh, we haven't gone far enough. Uh, why is it that the doctrine of God uh, it seems to have flown under the radar uh, of late. Yeah, I think there are, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, I mean, one of them, I think, is, is the history of, of modern evangelical Protestantism. Uh, really, the, the big battle of the early part of the 20th century, and indeed a, a battle that arguably went on for much of the 20th and even into the 21st century, was over the authority of Scripture. Uh, debates about infallibility, inerrancy, and those were important debates to have. I mean, very clearly, the, the authoritative, native, authoritative nature of Scripture is an extremely important concept for, for Christians. And as I say, it lay at the heart of, of many of the, the defining ecclesiastical and institutional battles uh, that marked evangelicalism in the 20th, 21st century. The danger of that, of course, is that you can tend to get so focused on, on the one area of doctrine that you can either neglect or, or come to, to regard as of secondary importance uh, other areas. So I think there's a historical reason for, for the emphases we have uh, in evangelicalism today. I also think there's a, uh, a more material or, or content-oriented reason as well, and that is when you think of the doctrine of Scripture, it, it's by and large uh, a sound doctrine of Scripture is is, is naturally intuitive to many of us. Somebody stands up in a pulpit on Sunday and says, you know, the Bible's full of mistakes, or the Bible says this and it isn't actually true. All kinds of alarm bells are going off in our minds at that point. That just sounds wrong. Intuitively, we know that an authoritative document should not be so easily dismissible as that. Somebody stands up and starts talking about some of the important aspects of the doctrine of God, Orthodoxy on these points is often counterintuitive. I mean, the most obvious example would be the Trinity. When you say to people, God is three and God is one, when you actually sit back and think about that, that's a pretty confusing statement, actually. Intuitively, that sounds <laughs> incoherent and wrong. And it rests, of course, upon some fairly elaborate and subtle distinctions and arguments that were developed primarily in the, in the 4th and 5th uh, century, but also beyond that. So there's a, one might put it this way, uh, the, the doctrine of Scripture is important, uh, flows naturally both from our history and from the nature of the doctrine itself. Uh, the doctrine of God's lack of importance rests upon the fact really that the doctrine of God is, is counterintuitive and has not been a primary focus uh, for debate 
among evangelicals in the, in the last 100, 150 years. So I would say those are the two reasons that probably have led to a certain sidelining of this, this very important aspect of, of the Christian faith. Now, Carl, when we're talking about the doctrine of God, and you've just, very helpfully, you've just been very clear that, uh, actually, this is central. And when we think of a doctrine like the Trinity, um, it's not enough to, to just uh, check this off our, our doctrinal list, but uh, th- this doctrine is actually essential to, to what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and, and in those battles over Scripture, we, we've emphasized uh, the doctrine of Scripture and and. Uh, more or less, when it comes to um, when it, when it comes to the doctrine of God, uh, well, sometimes there's very little consequences if if we get it wrong. Um, but yeah. at the same time, uh, no doubt some will listen to this and they'll say, "Well, like you just said, uh, goodness, isn't the, the the Trinity that's very difficult to understand?" So some will say, uh, "You know, the doctrine of God, whether it's Trinity or or attributes or even God's existence, uh, this is." A lot of this just gets into speculative territory, and, and so you know, don't we need to just stick with the text of of the Bible and and focus on that rather than getting carried away or or speculating into to areas where uh, we we just don't have a lot of knowledge? Um, but but you've argued that well, if we do Christian theology in, in the way it's meant to be done, and in, in a way that's consistent with the church's past. It's always speculative. Now, what do you mean by that, and in what sense? Yeah, again, speculative is a, it's an interesting word, because when you say to, to, I would guess, to the ordinary person in the pew, I don't want to sound patronizing, but you know, the ordinary person in the pew doesn't have the privilege of sitting and reading this stuff and studying it day after day. If you say to them, well, theology's got to be speculative, I think what they hear you saying is, oh, theology's all about what I am, you know, the flights of imagination that I'm going to use when I talk about God. I'm going to be probing into areas where really I shouldn't probe and having a guess at what God is like behind the scenes. What I mean when I, when I say speculative uh, theology, I mean asking questions uh, about what God must be like in eternity for the scriptural record of his actions in history to make sense. Uh, we could perhaps draw a, 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 all, all analogies, of course, are somewhat tenuous when you come to comparing the created world to God. But one could, one could look at a marriage and say, well, if Truman knows his wife and he knows how she behaves towards him, etc., uh, etc. Et but there's more to Truman's wife than her actions towards me. And in fact, her actions towards me are based upon, we might say, who she is biologically. She's a woman. She has a brain that has a linguistic capacity, so she can talk. She has an oppositional thumb. She has a certain genetic makeup. And I would say that uh, knowing that my wife is a woman, uh, knowing that she has a brain so she can talk to me, uh, these are things that are actually not irrelevant to my relationship. Obviously, the most important thing uh, day-to-day is how we interact. But my wife is not simply uh, the sum of my interactions with her. She's also a being in herself, and what she is in herself actually shapes how she relates to me and to other people. So a speculative doctrine of God is not we're, not, you know, we're not sort of engaging in flights of fancy about what we think God might be like. What we're doing is we're looking at the text of the Bible and saying, you know, if, if 
God acts in this way, or if these things are true about God, then in eternity, the following things must be true of him. For example, again, to go to the Trinity, the Bible clearly teaches that God is one. That's the most basic element, if you like, of, of Old Testament Jewish religion. God is one. Yet in the New Testament, we find this rather interesting interaction between God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. So God must also be three. And that, that triggers the, the, the reflection on God as Trinity. Somebody might turn around and say, well, that's not very practical. I would say it's actually intensely practical. How do you come into the church? Well, whether you're a Presbyterian or a Baptist, you come into the church by baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no more practical initiatory act in the church than baptism. Yet to understand baptism, you have to understand God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've got to, to probe back into eternity, if you like, and ask questions about, well, well, what is God like in himself in order for baptism to make sense in history? Carl, would you say this is one big reason, uh, one big reason why we have to be really careful that we don't, as Christians, just limit ourselves to, to what God does uh, and just kind of close our eyes to who he is in eternity? Yes, I think that because there, the real danger, if you just look at how God acts in history, the real danger is that you end up with a God who is just like a giant one of us. You end up with a God who's simply like a, a giant creature. Uh, and I think that's well, what you're doing there is you're dissolving, you're blurring the relationship between the creator, the one who stands outside of creation, outside of time, and on whom time and creation rest, and us creatures, creatures within it. Clearly the Bible uses what we call anthropomorphisms to describe God. It uses language that we can sort of apprehend, we can get a kind of handle on, in order to understand God's actions towards us. Uh, but we must never uh, lose sight of that, that most fundamental of biblical distinctions there in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Before there was anything else, there was God. There is a dramatic difference between the created realm and the creator. We mustn't fuse or confuse those two. We've been talking to Carl Truman, but let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. We're back from our break and ready to continue our conversation with Carl Truman on the importance of systematic theology. So, Carl, it sounds like that, and this could be an appropriate uh, transition to a discussion of biblical theology and systematic theology, because it sounds like if, if there's a danger, it, as much as it may be good intention to focus on the acts of God or you know, what we would call the economic work of God or the economic trinity, the, the acts of God in history, as good as that is and as important as that is, as essential as that is, 
Uh, nonetheless, if we do that and block out or blind ourselves to who God is apart from creation, apart from eternity, there's some serious consequences. We, we uh, collapse the, the imminent trinity into the economic trinity. We, we collapse God in and of himself into uh, what God does in history. And, and you're pointing out some of those uh, serious consequences. But that also raises the issue of, well, then biblical theology, as important as that is, Biblical theology, which takes us through the storyline of Scripture, what God has done, his, his redemptive acts and history, what we would call redemptive history, as important as that is, as essential as that is, uh, and I'm sure you know this, during your time as a preaching, as a pastor, nevertheless, it's not sufficient. If we just stop there with biblical theology, the, is the task then incomplete? Uh, incomplete in what sense, Matthew? So let's say we just focus on, uh, say, the storyline of Scripture, uh, okay. and, and we we maybe we're tracing a theme, um, a theme like uh, priesthood, uh, an excellent uh, project uh, to to embark upon. And so we're tracing this theme of priesthood from Leviticus, and then we get to uh, we get to say the the New Testament, and uh, we're, we're understanding what that means in Christ, and, and so on, um, but. If we don't take that next step of then drawing theological conclusions, well, what does this priesthood mean about atonement? What does this priesthood mean uh, about the character of God, his justice, his righteousness, his holiness? Um, Are we not then connecting the dots between, say, biblical theology and then systematic uh, conclusions? Yeah, I think the, I mean, the priesthood is a good example on that because the question of priesthood is, well, what's priesthood dealing with? Priesthood is dealing with sin. Uh, how do we understand sin when well, sin is uh, uh, any, any lack of conformity or contravention of the law of God, of God's holy character? So when we think about that, that most economic of actions, if you like, sin and salvation, it pushes us back to think about God in eternity because to have an appropriate understanding of the seriousness of sin, we really need to have an understanding of the greatness of God, and that requires us not simply to look at how God has has interacted with his creation, but to look at his greatness in and of himself. So priesthood would be good an example, and I think that also points us towards what I would regard as the the doxological or, or the praise and worship aspects of having a good, sound, systematic doctrine of God. Again, one of the things that evangelicalism has done well is we, we're very comfortable uh, in knowing that we need to praise God for what he has done for us. But there's also a sense in which the God of the Bible uh, requires worship from his people because of who he is in himself. Uh, you look at the Psalms, often the psalmist is, is praising God because he is a glorious God to be praised, not simply because of what he's done. So I think systematic theology helps uh, give a, a solid underpinning to appropriate Christian worship as well. Now, when we're talking about the relationship between biblical and systematic theology, and of course you're a historian, uh, we could bring in some history here, go back to, say, the, uh, the 18th century, late 18th century, uh, with with the rise of someone like uh, Johann Gabler, Gabler who... Uh, is, is sometimes looked at as the father of, of a modern 
uh, biblical theology. Uh, you've made a, an interesting uh, observation, though, where you've actually have compared someone like him to, uh, say, a Reformed biblical theologian like Gerhardus Voss. Uh, maybe uh, to to flesh out all this we're talking about, maybe you could flesh this out further. How how would you compare these two figures? Uh, how does this set uh, a trajectory in one way or the other for um, how Christians today think about biblical and systematic theology? Yes, yeah, so well, in some sense, one would want to go back behind Gabler to look at how theology was traditionally done in, a, for want of a better better term, a sort of pre-Enlightenment context. Uh, when you go to the Middle Ages or the early Church or even the Reformation, uh, you generally find that the theologians, those doing theology, are competent in numerous spheres. They're competent in the biblical text, they're competent in exegesis, they're competent in the history of theology, they're competent in the move from uh, the exegesis of Scripture to the, the, uh, the, the development of systematic theological constructs. When you get to the Enlightenment, uh, what happens is that with the birth of the, the modern university system, you start to get a fragmentation of, of specialization. So for no, nobody in particular is responsible for this. But the, the kind of modern education we have today, say at a seminary, where even at a conservative seminary like yours or, or Westminster, where I used to work, you'll, you'll typically have almost kind of siloed disciplines. You'll have somebody who teaches systematics. You'll have somebody who teaches New Testament. Somebody who teaches Old Testament. Uh, and so what you have in, in the modern era is uh, institutionally a, a breakdown of the structures that used to provide for, for dialogue and synthesis of all of the theological disciplines. Now, when you jump to somebody like Gabler, Gabler is very self-consciously trying to get out from under what he perceives to be uh, an unfortunate tendency among uh, previous generations of scholars to exegete the Bible simply to try to produce a nice, neat system of theology. Whether that's an accurate account of, of what went on previously in general, or simply of what he himself observed is another issue. That's what he's trying to get out from under. And what he proposes is a model whereby uh, the, the development of, we might call, the religious thought of the different characters and epochs in the Bible is studied in terms of its historical development. Now, when I think uh, a man like Gerhardus Voss, who was a very influential uh, theologian at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, and who uh, really lies behind a lot of, of, of the best of modern evangelical and reformed uh, biblical theological studies, I think what Voss does is he sort of baptizes Gabler's paradigm, which was not necessarily particularly conservative or traditional or concerned about conservative and traditional themes. He baptizes that by having a, a clear emphasis upon the one God who inspires the whole of Scripture and therefore provides Scripture with this underlying unity that could be lost. If all you focus upon is the differing historical epochs, you might lose the central core that holds all things together. I think uh, Voss's greatness lies in the fact that he's able to combine traditional doctrine of God as developed in systematic theology uh, and, and use that as the, as the foundation for studying uh, the dramatic movement 
uh, of, of the scriptural narrative. So when we talk about these two approaches, you know, someone like Abler or someone like Voss, uh, we, we see major differences between them. Um, and I, I, with someone like Voss, his understanding of biblical theology is never meant to subvert somehow systematic theology. Uh, he, he, he doesn't, uh, for example, he's, he's operating within a confessional paradigm, uh, which, which is different than someone like Gabler, uh, but he's doing so in a way where he's trying to be faithful to the text, but never trying to allow biblical theology to, to say, override uh, classical categories. I suppose that raises a, a really big question, uh, and, and for some of our listeners who may be pastors, this is no doubt relevant to uh, preaching uh, and, and entering the pulpit every week. Uh, how, how much should uh, or how often should uh, something like systematic theology or even a discipline that you, you're you immersed in, uh, church history and historical theology, how much should it influence uh, the way we approach the text, uh, the way we preach the text, uh, even the, the conclusions we reach about the whole storyline of the Bible? Yeah, it's a very good question, and, and it may not be a one-size-fits-all answer, uh, but I would suggest that, that what this should drive uh, many pastors to do is to make sure that their reading is is broad, deep, and balanced, if I could put it that way. That it's not enough simply to read biblical commentaries. It's also very, very useful to read systematic theology and historical theology. I could uh, imagine a situation, for example, when one's exegeting or, or preaching on a passage of uh, from the Old Testament where God is described as, as changing his mind. And uh, if all you're doing is, is, is reading the, the surface narrative of the text, and maybe you, you've got a couple of commentaries that are not particularly theologically deep but do a good job with, with looking at the narrative, you might be tempted to, to preach to your congregation that God changes. Uh, I think the, that, that's the kind of position where, where checking the, your, your confession and checking systematic theology can help because you, know, you can bet your bottom dollar that somebody in church history has thought of that interpretation before and has come up with, with reasons why it should or should not be promoted. So using your systematic theology and your, your historical theology in that kind of context will help you to understand why sometimes the common sense reading of the text is actually disastrous when it's set within the canon of Scripture as a whole. And maybe that's a way of describing how uh, systematic theology and to an extent historical theology can function. They, they help the exegete, they help the pastor locate the particulars of whatever narrative section he's looking at within uh, lines of thought that occur within the canon as a whole and allow the, if you like, the canonical reading of a particular text to regulate the kind of conclusions and applications one might draw from it. Carl, we've been talking about the church, and you just gave a, a very helpful example of, of how a pastor, even in his sermon prep, uh, he's, he's, you know, maybe he's coming across passages where it says God relents or God repents, and, and how systematic theology can actually inform his exegesis and, and, and guard him uh, from some, some exegetical options, so to speak, that could be uh, disastrous and, and actually not true to the text itself. 
but if we move from, say, back and forth between, uh, say, church and academy, and, and we talk about uh, not just uh, preaching from the pulpit, but the role of systematic theology or, or church history or creeds and confessions or subscription in, in the context of, of say, uh, an institution, uh, a seminary, a theological seminary, uh, you've made the argument that um, in some of those articles you wrote on uh, systematic theology as poor relation, you make the argument that, well, systematic theology should play a central role in any theological curriculum, and, and it shouldn't be confused with biblical theology. Can you tease that out uh, a little bit more? I mean, given your, you've had many decades of experience now in, in the seminary, uh, what, does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, what, what kind of central role do you have in mind? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that, uh, that the confusion between biblical theology and systematic theology is, uh, can be very detrimental to, to theological education. Uh, uh, I, I think one of, the, one of the points that I'll make here is the historical one. The Church has, over time, come to define what it believes about certain important things, for example, the Trinity or the Incarnation, not simply by going to Scripture and exegeting Scripture. It's, it's come to define those positions by debating those findings of exegesis within the context of the Church itself. There is what the, the Roman Catholic theologian uh, Bernard Lonergan calls a kind of a dialectical aspect to uh, the formulation of doctrine in the Church. You can go back to, to the ancient Church, and um, if you read the letters of Ignatius of Antioch there, early 2nd century, and uh, we don't know much about Ignatius of Antioch's opponents, but Ignatius, at numerous points in his letters, keeps emphasizing that Jesus was really born and really had human flesh uh, and really did this. He really ate. He really did this, that, and the other bodily. And we can guess from that that probably there's somebody in the early church arguing that that Jesus didn't really have a body. He was like a hologram or something like that, because, of course, the idea would be that if God took human flesh, then God would somehow be corrupted or less than God. Uh, that's a good example of how uh, doctrine develops in the early church. Because what you have there is, if you like, sort of put it bluntly, ideas that turn out to be heretical, being proposed, and the church having to respond by by formulating and emphasizing things that, that may not flow directly from the, the, the balance and emphasis of Scripture, but are necessary in a particular polemical context to address a particular error that's being pressed. Protestants very familiar, for example, with Martin Luther's justification by grace through faith. Many of us would look at some of the things he says about good works and say, well, he went too far then, but we understand why he did, because he was attacking this kind of self-righteous, legalistic moralism of, of the later Middle Ages. So systematic theology has not simply fallen off the pages of Scripture. It's actually developed uh, through the process of long and often very heated debates within the Church, where one position will be put forward, and, and that sort of sets the terms of debate. Uh, and, and finally, an orthodox position will be, will be presented as an alternative. So that's why systematic theology needs to be taught, because you can't simply understand why the Church believes what it does about the Trinity or the Incarnation, simply by sitting somebody down and telling them to read their Bible. You've got to look at the history of the discussions to understand why these things are so important. Now, somebody 
might respond and say, yeah, but isn't that, uh, aren't you then getting into hair splitting? Why can't I just believe the Bible? Well, the bottom line is, the Church comes up with the doctrine of the Trinity. The Church formulates the Incarnation the way it does, because these are the only formulations of God and Christ that will actually save. They may be complicated. It may take a long time to get to them. But these understandings that the Church proposes are the only ones that ultimately do justice to Scripture's claim that God in Christ saves. So they actually do have a very, very practical payoff in the end. We've been talking to Carl Truman, and if you've uh, been fascinated by some of his answers, especially that last one about the, not just the importance of systematic theology, but uh, church history and creeds and confessions and the significant role they've played, not only in the history of the church, but even in interpreting our own Bibles. Well, uh, pick up one of his books. Uh, the Creedal Imperative is, is a, a short but uh, powerful book that gets at some of these things uh, more than just what we've said here. Uh, Histories and Fallacies is another one. Uh, he mentioned Luther. You could look at uh, Carl's book, Luther on the Christian Life. I should also mention that Carl has a chapter on the Reformation itself in Reformation Theology, which I edited with Crossway. Uh, any one of these works uh, would be helpful to both pastors, students, and scholars alike. Uh, Carl, what a pleasure it's been to, to talk to you about uh, such important issues that, uh, of course, you're, you're concerned with in the academy, but uh, issues that affect uh, life in the church as well. Thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me, Matthew. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.